Hello and welcome to Minter Dialogue, episode number 258. Today is Sunday, the 26th of November 2017, and this interview is with Dmitry Shishkin, who's a digital editor at the BBC World Service, shaping the evolution of the famed BBC World Service in the digital age. Dmitry is also overseeing the language's digital product requirements, helping the expansion into the strategic need and want markets. At the veritable coalface of the impact of digital on media, Dmitry also helps the editorial teams react and adjust to the changing consumption patterns. A most fascinating journey. Welcome to the Minter Dialogue Internet Show, where we discuss brand marketing with a focus on all things digital. I am Minter Dial, author of TheMindset.com, that's T-H-E-M-Y-N-D-S-E-T, where branding gets personal. You'll find the show notes on the blog for the upcoming interview. Let's cut to quick. Enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to the Minter Dialogue. Dmitry Shishkin, great to have you on the show. You and I met at the Global Editors Network. Uh, assembling probably the, the 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 elite crack media people in the world, and uh, I really liked about hearing what you were getting up to at the BBC. So, in your own words, if you would, tell us uh, who you are and what's your mindset, Dimitri. Thank you very much, first of all, for inviting me um, to the podcast. Uh, I'm really privileged to not only to have known you, but also to now be able to speak. Um, I work for the BBC as a digital development editor, and uh, my job is basically to grow the audience um, in non-English language around the world on all digital platforms for the BBC. And my, my mindset is um, inquisitive. Uh, I am open for new ideas, and because I coach and mentor people, I think it's a natural state for every leader to actually be open and be in listening mode rather than the in broadcast mode. And, and it's funny you should say that, because let's say the BBC, one of the words is broadcast. Mm. <laughs> At some level, as a journalist and people working in the media world, it seems that inquisitive ought to be a standard. I, I'm wondering, um, you know, because w- one of the reasons why having you and your role at the BBC on the show is to, to understand that the media world has been at the front line, at the, the, the mine pit of this whole transformation and dealing with the 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 world of the internet, so I, let's I'd be I'd be interested to hear from you how the BBC has been trying to lead this because obviously BBC holds a specific and very different place in the world of media. How how is the BBC managing this whole transformation and how is it doing it differently than or why is it different at the BBC versus other media? I think the whole nature of the BBC uh, since its inception meant that BBC was a company which um, was born out of a technological revolution, and that's why everything that BBC was doing, uh, or has been doing, has been connected with technological revolution to start with. So BBC has started doing radio because the radio appeared, then the same thing for TV. We just celebrated the 20th anniversary of BBC News website having been born. So... uh, uh, the online world kind of you know has has become available to people, and then we now in the same vein we move into uh, augmented reality, virtual reality, and uh, voice activated technologies. So I think it's ver- 
it comes to us very natural um, and it also helps to have departments or units like mine for example or many others in the BBC that actually are on the lookout of um, identifying new things bringing new things into editorial teams trailing them or trialing them and then uh, either discarding them or actually appropriating them so it's it's um, when we talked about inquisitive mind I think it's important to acknowledge publicly that a you don't know all the answers mm -hmm. and b that you are open about acknowledging that you know don't know all the answers that you inquisitiveness means um, admitting your own uh, income incompleteness and uh, I think this about the digital transformation is about actually completing things that by default cannot ever be completed because you know my job I always tell people who come to work for my team is that compare prepare yourself to run a marathon and then another marathon and then another another marathon it's not a sprint you're not in the situation anymore where you come to work in the morning and you your piece will have aired in the evening or overnight or something like that you're not in that mode anymore you are uh, we are measuring our success by quarters by uh, six monthly periods those types of things so it's uh, it's a different mindset yeah for sure what's interesting is is to sort of put or juxtapose the challenge that BBC has of being at the forefront of media in the first place, but being at the forefront of taking on new technologies where the word new is there and yet doing it more like the tortoise, which is, let's say, more longer term thinking. And, and because at the end of the day, you still are up against people who are, let's not quote them, but are in the clickbait world, you know, looking for titles that get people traffic and you are up against them. So presumably your performances, your metrics of performance are still held in the same kind of light. So how do you juxtapose that? It's difficult, and uh, I won't even pretend that it's not difficult. So we, we, we try to, to prioritize as much as we can, and we also run... So let, let me paint you a picture. So I've got... Um, I am helping um, 40 editorial teams to be better at digital journalism. So that means that I am spending maybe 80% of my time actually uh, on practical things that are in the now, uh, digital video, social media, data, analytics, training, um, uh, formats, innovation, all those types of things. But at the same time, you always are investing in certain projects that are going to be coming upstream in six months, nine months, a year, just to see whether they work or not. So that's, that, that's a given. It's kind of 80-20 rule, I would say. But at the same time, we, I always am struggling myself with a notion of uh, I am, my job is to manage the editorial transformation with editorial teams. I'm not, I'm not responsible what people are outputting on a daily basis, but I'm responsible in helping them uh, transform their output to a, on a more kind of digital, uh, to, to more digital kind of frame of mind. But um, I am also responsible for managing the relationship with all our technical teams. So the delivery of the new websites, the new apps, the, the um, Google accelerated mobile pages, Facebook instant articles, all of these kind of prioritization tasks also come from my department where we sit down and um, uh, assess what's good, what's not good, what's important, what's not important. So um, in the past, I would say that actually my focus probably was 80-20 towards the technical side of things. Currently, my focus is definitely 80-20 towards the editorial side of things, the actual editorial transformation, change management within uh, people who actually are creating content. So 
I think we are absolutely we we are, are the reason why I'm, I said that we are struggling with something is that every single language team that uh, I'm helping to be better digital they have their own competitors around the world mm. and all of those are uh, competitors around the world have their own technical teams that are innovating at scale and at very very fast pace so if you are running a BBC Indonesian website there are going to be five or six really really strong Indonesian websites against which we are competing so and my biggest worry is that the technical ability to innovate on the for those standalone competitors is higher than the overall ability of our innovation because we need to comply with all sorts of things that our innovation need to look after the needs of say 40 different outlets at the same time so you you can't really concentrate on making one thing really really deep and better because actually there are 39 other people who are also asking things of you so I've got about well we talk we can talk about prioritization but I guess what I'm saying mainly is that uh, we definitely are competing against all the competitors using the same metrics that the whole industry is using um, you know page views less so browser browser engagement levels recirculation um, all that kind of stuff dwell time attention minutes and all that kind of stuff but I also think that we also need to be seen as uh, BBC is one of the best organizations in the world and we'd like to be seen when I go to conferences or my colleagues go to conferences we need to be bringing new things that people can learn from us for the benefit of the whole industry yeah because you guys are our leaders and I'd be interested to, to think about this notion of the BBC brand because if you're if you're up against a daily mail or the equivalent in Indonesia they're, on, they're playing a different game Completely. And so, so how does the BBC brand consider innovation? You just said, you know, we need to show and share to other people. How do you, how do you infiltrate or integrate the BBC brand in the way you innovate? Well, um, again, with a caveat that I obviously am not director general of the BBC. <laughs> sure. Nor am I the head of uh, world service, nor am I the head of language services. I only can speak from my own perspective, but um, I wouldn't say that I would be speaking out of turn to um, kind of lay out those things or those notions in front of you. So um, tackling the unique selling point factor is one thing. So we we understand that every language service will only grow in every particular market when uh, there is a very clear mission statement or very, mission, very clear purpose of why we exist in every market. And there are, according to the BBC, there are markets of want and there are markets of need. So the markets of need are the markets where the access to news or impartial news or diversified news is restricted. And that's why BBC is uh, is providing that shortfall of impartial and independent news environment. There are markets where, arguably, you know, India is a market with you know hundreds and hundreds of TV channels. Uh, we think that in the markets of want, where people actually choose consciously to go to the BBC, we are providing something that the local markets just don't provide. We provide that um, quiet, safe space um, where people can make sense of what's happening in, around the world. We, I call this a, it's an unofficial strategy which can be described in two words, explain and connect. We are in markets to explain to people how the world events affect their lives or how events in their country impact on other people's lives around the world. And we are also connecting 
people around the world by sharing their mutual experiences, relevant mutual experiences. Because I, it is my big belief that, for example, one of the big things that modern journalism uh, is bringing to audiences is something which is called solution-based journalism, where we, we hear time and time again across different markets that people are tired um, of just hearing about problems, and people would like to hear about solutions. So for us, the way we work with our 40 language teams, well, there are 37 because we're yet to launch three, uh, 37 teams is we probably are the best connected 37 editorial teams around the world in comparison to other international broadcasters that also have vernacular language teams. I believe that a person, young person living in Moscow will benefit from similar experiences from somebody living in Mexico City or in Jakarta or in Cape Town. So I believe that it is our job to actually show people how world's problems are tackled by local solutions around the world. So that, that, that is the editorial side of things. Technical side of things is that we, <coughs> the we I am strong I am a strong believer in the public service purpose of the BBC and by uh, saying that what I mean really by that is that I although the British public pays for us uh, it not only pays for us to uh, disseminate the news around the world uh, but it also pays for us to actually be uh, the best practice guide for how to do digital journalism, or for that matter, radio or TV journalism around the world. And by, what I mean by that is that we, all our innovation, I am for total transparency and showing people, and that's why I'm completely relaxed about putting all my presentations and numbers and graphs, uh, upload them and make them available to people, because we are public service broadcaster. We are doing all these things on public money for the greater good of journalism around the world. We, we still are competing, but I don't believe in suppressing competitiveness. I am actually, I actually think that we can only be stronger by being strong ourselves rather than constantly thinking about what competitors are doing. In listening to you, Dimitri, it, it does strike me that the, the business model and therefore the return on investment that the individuals paying for the BBC are, are in between. On the one hand, the BBC is presenting the very best of Britain in its in its history of journalism, in its desire for transparency, in its, in its obsession or at least uh, desire and ability to go into countries of need. And, and, and that's a very noble cause. At the same time, if the BBC is not able to criticize England and what's going on in Britain, uh, then it, it's sort of coming back at the tail, the, the tail's biting the animal. It, it's a kind of an interesting balance you have to fit. fit. Well, if you take this week and the Paradise Papers, for example, and the, uh, all the connections of Britain and different British um, outfits or organizations or, um, uh, or some other structures have had with leaks uh, or have been featured in leaks, we have been extensively covering it. There is no question about it. Um, and if you take um, all our investigations and, you know, Panorama investigations and all others, we are always there. It's um, what I mean by, uh, I guess, transparency. It's also about um, when, for example, I'm doing some innovation, innovation uh, projects with, say, 360 degrees videos and uh, VR or AR or synthetic voices or anything like that, automated translation. Um, I'm not afraid of publicly acknowledging the mistakes that we have done while doing the projects because um, only by having mistaken once 
you actually have avoided mistakes later in your next project. And one of the things, for example, we, um, if I may just use 30 seconds to describe what I mean by that, um, about two years ago, I was running a project of uh, synthetic translate, uh, synthetic voice synthesis for, no, hold on. I was, I was driving, I was running a project about automated translate, automatically translating English language videos using synthetic voices and Google Translate from one language to another. And um, we tried it and we tested it and the audience tolerance was uh, uh, acceptable. So the audience was able to acknowledge that yes, some videos will be translated automatically. And then uh, suddenly everybody became obsessed with videos without voices, just with subtitles. Mm -hmm. Like on social media, everybody just reads subtitles and nobody listens to anything. So for me, it was very hard to sell this idea to editors because they, all they were saying is saying, well, you are trying to, to, uh, trying to persuade in me using something that our audience doesn't need. Okay, well, I, uh, I understood that and we started adding subtitles to the videos, which kind of killed off the initial synthetic voices angle of the whole thing. But then suddenly, Alexa, Cortana, Siri, and all other voice-activated devices uh, came on stream. And although they're not relevant to our markets in the developing world yet, um, I know that everything that we have accumulated in terms of knowledge, in terms of how great Russian synthetic voices are or Japanese synthetic voices are, we can then go and reuse that knowledge to a project which we might be only scoping now. So we That's might have failed first, but actually it has contributed to the better group forward. That's fascinating. You mentioned that the, let's say that the Russian synthetic voices are, are good. I, I'm wondering what a, and you have this view on so many different cultures, Dimitri. It's, it must be a fascinating place to be to see where journalism and or using new technologies for media because at the end of the day, a lot of companies are in media as well, not just you know journalist companies, uh, news companies. Where, what kinds of countries are doing things that are interesting from your perspective in new tech, whether it's AR, mixed, VR, 360, whatever? Well, what, what, what do you see? Well, I'm, you're right. Everything between Jakarta to the east and Sao Paulo to the west and kind of from Moscow to Cape Town is kind of within the remit of world service. So we are extremely privileged. I always say that I have the best job in the world in journalism. Um, I think you're right. I think the most important thing that companies, that non-journalistic companies can actually learn from media companies is um, importance of data uh, in uh, everyday decisions and uh, transparency about data and kind of taking yourself into account using data. Um, we have, you know, a lot of transformational work which we do uh, is helped by uh, referring to data. So that's kind of the... Uh, being friends with data is important to any CEO around the world or any kind of person who who, who wants to change their business. Um, in terms of interesting things that are happening, I think I'm mostly fascinated by the fact that there's going to be another billion people connected to the Internet um, within the next couple of years in the developing world, mainly in Africa and Asia. They all will be connected via mobile phone. They have never used desktop to connect to the internet. The way they use internet is completely different. I think from a few years ago, we had had this, this paradoxical study where people in Africa were saying, more people in Africa had said that they have access to Facebook than to the internet. So for people in developing world, Facebook and social media or WhatsApp or WeChat means the internet, right? So the way they consume news, the way they consume technology and I guess, 
the way they access things is completely different to us. Um, so for, for us, another thing is that how do you create content for people who are extremely conscious of their data plans? Um, although we know that we have been hearing that data costs are going to go down inevitably because they always go down, but it's not happening yet. You know, it will start happening. And I know that, for example, a bundle of um, um, certain number of gigabytes in Delhi will probably be cheaper than in London, actually, because what we know in developing world that everything that is consumer facing is bound to be cheaper than in the more established economies already because of the the, the, the curve. But um, what, I, what, what I say, the, uh, um, somebody told me that people in uh, Nairobi, in, in Kenya, for example, young people, they would say, they would save money, uh, not spending money on lunch, but to buy data huh. to use money to go online. So my question I'm posing to all the editors in Africa or in Asia is that is your content good enough for somebody to skip lunch for it? You know, and um, I think it's exactly the same thing, because frankly speaking, from my non BBC experience, um, because I talk to people who are in content creation or rather engagement creation business. Banks are, travel agencies are, you know, all the companies, um, even oil companies are. Everybody's creating content. Everybody's creating content for social media. Everybody's after eyeballs. Everybody's out. All the big companies suddenly realize that business to business communication is not what they are going to, um, it's not where they're going to get brownie points. Actually, business to customer communication, especially for the huge companies, is going to be incredibly important. And how are they going to do it? Clearly not by just pegging their or pushing out their press releases. They're going to be creating engaging content. And that's why I'm such a big fan of native advertising, because actually I think native advertising is the best thing that ever has happened to journalism, because if it's done right, then it brings so much value to the customer at the end, because the quality of native advertising content and the journalistic content is should be on this absolutely the same level. And if it is, then there is no difference whatsoever. And if the company that is sponsoring native advertising piece is not even mentioned in the piece, that's even the best thing, right? Hmm. Because people, you get the value by kind of associating your brand with a great, great content and big companies do that. And I am in no doubt that the lessons that I have accumulated and we are learning, they are equally relevant to absolutely any industry in the world because everybody's after engagement and growth. Hmm. And trust, right? And trust, and trust. So you, we've mentioned a few technologies, uh, augmented reality, mixed, and, and 360. Um, we've also talked about social. I, I wanted to dig in on one area that I think has at least a, a, an inquisitive mind behind it, which is the use of technologies that are a little less on the radar, like blockchain and like the dark web, the dark net, uh, the onion ring. Um, so the Onion Ring, the Tor browser. Um, so what is, what, what's the BBC's approach to those type of technologies? Are, are you guys on board or are you looking at it from afar? Where are you? So we are. We have started looking at it from afar, uh, but we are getting close. And again, um, I'm saying with, with a great caveat that I'm not responsible for taking a final decision, right? I can sure. gu- guide and advise. And my view is that um, it's a... Uh, people need to be educated about dark web and people need to be educated about what it is for and people need to be we, we need to acknowledge that it is used by for, by criminals 
there are lots of nefarious activities happening in dark web because of the uh, um, well the, 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 the anonymity of it. However, uh, the uh, in my view, Tor Technologies or Onion websites and uh, all this type of stuff is not dissimilar to a VPN. In a, in the same that uh, in the same way that our there are several BBC websites that are blocked in several countries. Um, our BBC Chinese is blocked in China. BBC Persian is blocked in Iran. We see some problems with some other sites as well. Uh, and of course, of course, people uh, we don't we don't officially uh, write on our websites that please go and uh, log on to VPN and use VPNs and everything else. But we know, of course, that people are using it, right? So if people are getting into dark web to access, uh, to, to, to be anonymous in order to get access to the information which they are prevented from getting, Britain is obviously a signature, well, Britain's signature is on the UN Declaration of Human Rights, which actually states a unrestricted access to information irrespective of the borders. So we, we in that case, we're thinking if we make our websites, which are blocked in particular countries, available on those anonymized services, uh, then we're going to do an additional service to people who are trying to find them. So we, we, it's not as if we're saying that people who people are going to use BBC, uh, then they go and will buy drugs or arms or access child pornography, uh, you know, as part of the service. It's not as if you know we're going to join some kind of portal where you can get news and you know drugs at the same time. No, it's it's not like that. It just all all it happens is that BBC uh, will have a particular URL. Uh, which will be available there. That's it. That's uh, uh, everything is completely secure. When you talk about anonymity, Dimitri, it does also bring up the notion of whistleblowers and the ability for information to get out, as opposed to broadcasting in. Mm. Uh, so the international consortium of journalists, uh, with which you guys operate, and and is obviously in the news, especially recently, but. Um, and WikiLeaks and the opportunity to anonymize sources, there are great new technologies that are beginning to allow, or not beginning, that are allowing for this uh, blockchain, possibly another area. What, what, what's, what's the BBC or Europe, <laughs> Dimitri's uh, perspective on this? So we, we, we haven't done anything with blockchain uh, at all. Uh, the, the only thing I would say about, uh, and this could be a very basic example, but it's still not, nevertheless a very important example, is um, um, when we opened our websites for commenting, um, that must have been about 15 years ago, uh, when people were able to register or even just go on the website and leave their comments. And I remember where commenting platforms would contribute maybe 15-20% of our total reach. You know, enormously popular, especially because we um, it was painstakingly hard and very, very difficult, and nobody really liked that um, shift to moderate comments. But it was, if the comments were moderated prior to being published, then the you always knew that if you were um, part of the commentary or you know have your say, as we used to call them, on the BBC website, you were in safe environment where all the comments were of a particular quality and everything was fine. And but the the trouble is that. Uh, majority of site, majority of commenting platforms require sign in, 
And uh, we know that it's a barrier for people, especially in the countries where they would uh, be reluctant to share their personal information with some kind of, especially with us, you know, being a British website, you know, it's kind of not necessarily something that people might want to do. Some might, some might not. But uh, what, since we moved into a platform where which required people to register, our overall numbers have gone down because people were just not interested. And then we took conscious decision of migrating all our discussions and commenting to social media, where just you know people just natu- natively are, naturally are. So um, I think that irrespective of what product I'm using, and there are internal products that you can use for commenting for any media organizations, you can build your own, or you can go buy off the shelf. Um, you obviously have to be able to provide an anonymous commentary for people, especially if you are talking about the countries where audience would expect that. On the other hand, it obviously you're obviously keeping the question unanswered about how to moderate it better and how to keep the level of conversation to the same level because anonymity all obviously leads to people you know people can take advantage of trash them. talk. Exactly. But I, uh, we know that you know, companies like New York Times, for example, they have been running a really, really interesting uh, um, automatically uh, moderated comment- commentary systems. And we know that there are third parties available everywhere for you know, using machine learning, um, AI, all that kind of stuff to actually be better moderators than humans. Um, it's just that for a company like the BBC, we always come into those types of conversations from a standpoint of we are not a single website. You know, I sometimes envy single standalone websites that can do all sorts of things. Um, for us, even if we have, I mean, 30, uh, sorry, 40 world service language websites, uh, four domestic, uh, Verne- uh, well, English, Gaelic, uh, Welsh websites here, uh, Japanese website, uh, which is also a BBC News website, but fully commercial, no public money is spent on BBC Japanese. So we, we've got 45 websites roughly, right? And that's on the news. We also have sport, iPlayer, children's radio, all sorts of things. So it's like, you know, dozens and dozens of websites. They are in an ideal world. If I were director general or the head of digital for the BBC, of course, everybody would be saying, let's try to make the sense out of it. Let's, let's use similar platforms as much as possible. So you can't really have the portfolio going and having 20 different commenting systems all across because it's just not worth it. However, um, what what we have been trying to do, and that was my kind of, since I left the editorial, frontline editorial work in 2011 and started doing the job I'm kind of, the incarnation of the job I'm now doing uh, in 2011, I was always trying to make the point to people who make decisions that world service, because of the nature of what we do and because of the nature of our comp- competition around the world, we need to be allowed some leeway to actually do things differently. Uh, because we, our competitive situation is completely different, the, the way we hustle for the audience is completely different. Let's admit it, BBC News website is one of the dominant websites in the world. People, uh, f- Their front page is still important, people still go to BBC to check news from around the world. Um, if you are running, you know, BBC Uzbek service, then you or BBC Azeri service, you're likely to be getting your uh, audience from search and social, mainly. Uh, and we also obviously know that if there are three types of audiences, you know, very engaged, medium engaged, and uh, little engaged, you different sources of traffic are going to be more important for each segment. Front page will be more important for engaged users. Search and social will be more important for 
for, for less engaged services. So uh, experiment, experimenting with new technologies is what, uh, what should be a part of your uh, remit on a regular basis. And 360, for example, that's an interesting thing, the virtual reality and everything. We absolutely should be doing those things. But whether it will contribute to my overall growth target, no. It's, it, it just won't. Um, because it, it takes a lot of time, it's very expensive, um, and the tra- it's very hard to track the audience or actually ascertain how many people have used it. And even if you were tracking it, the numbers probably will be you know percentages of one percent, fractions of one percent of our total reach. And um, you know whether we like it or not, we have been tasked with a very very significant target by BBC Centenary 2022. We have been asked to um, reach half a billion people weekly on all our platforms, TV, radio, uh, digital, social media, across English and all languages internationally. And we are currently on about 370, 380. So it's not only about losing the, not losing the current audience, but it's actually growing you know, a lot. And there is another target um, two years previously in 2020, we have committed to be contributing a quarter of the whole of world service reach coming from digital. And uh, we, are, we, we, we still have three years to do it, uh, well, two years to do it. And uh, it's a very aggressive target because obviously we are still huge on radio and it's very easy to grow audience on TV. Mm. Wow. So, Dimitri, last line of investigation, uh, as I, I like to do it. You're, you're leading digital transformation, and you have all these technologies from all these different countries, this pressure. I can just, I, I mean, I can't imagine the, the, the amount of swirling that goes around when you have 37 people say, well, in my country, we need this, and in my country, it should be more mobile, and so on and so forth. And you're also dealing with a hierarchy people who have been in the business for a long time, certainly much older uh, and very successful up until today, dealing with the innovations that that have come along. But how do you lead digital transformation effectively, especially when you've got to sort of warrant using a technology which is going to help 0.001% of my traffic? Mm. Well, um, we've got about gazillion ways of prioritizing things. Uh, because obviously, you know, you as you rightly say, you, you, you've got whether you are hard, heavy on social traffic, there will be one conversation with you. If you are hard, heavy on mobile traffic, a different conversation with you. Whether you are very heavy on partnership traffic or syndication traffic, a different conversation. So um, you can't generalize with my portfolio. You just you just can't. Uh, and you always need to think think of the bigger picture. You always need the way I try to lead and the way I try to. Um, express myself to my stakeholders. Kind of, I am a typical of a matrix environment, right? So I uh, don't. Uh, I I have power because people probably trust me to do what I have been doing before. But I don't have authority over other people who I'm influencing. I'm only persuading them in doing things a certain way. So I am. I'm listening a lot. Um, I I failed when I was doing this kind of. There is this. Um, expression called uh, tell, sell, yell uh, as a method of persuading somebody to do it. You tell them first, then you start selling the same thing, and then you start yelling at people or writing emails to your bosses saying, go and talk to them, they don't listen to me. Doesn't work. Just doesn't work, that sort of thing. So what you need to do really is you need to listen, and then listen again, 
and then ask another question because sometimes the most important things that people are worried about come out when you ask them and what else for the third time and only then you can actually understand what people are afraid of because the people normally come from into people resist change or are afraid of change because they uh, are threatened and they, they they are not thinking with their frontal uh, cortex they are thinking with their amygdala and they are it's a fight or flight type of thing so you either kind of try to remove yourself from the situation believing that it will never concern you and my job is to uh, actually say well I'm not threatening you I'm not uh, the, our best way forward is always going to be a compromise because I need you to be taken on board with me I will be fair to you I will be fair in all my dealings with you all the time, but I will be using all my the techniques I have, all the instruments I have, like data. Um, another thing, because journalists, I, I believe that journalists, again from exp- from experience, they can't really argue with data. They um, they can argue with gut feeling of another person, but they will never argue with data. Even the most the hardest people to change will always pay attention to data and that's where they will say well okay I'll give it a go I'll give it a try and then we'll come back to it in another month and see um, whether in the past if you would just say well just do as I say that's the again tell sell yell thing it, it doesn't work another thing is I um, believe in transparency and I believe in cascading responsibility because ultimately uh, I can help them but they want they need to want to be helped because if, um, if they don't, if they don't appreciate where the big picture, bigger picture is, where we're trying to go, I'm always trying to paint a picture of where we need to be and how, it will feel, how they will feel in the final destination. Because actually people react, I generally feel that people react to the feeling in a much bigger way than they react to words, than somebody is saying. Because I... There's a very famous saying that, you know, I always will forget what you said to me, but I will never forget how you made me feel. And uh, I think for us as change managers, that's the most important thing, frankly, because you need to get people on board. And I think the best leaders are the leaders who um, are always there, who are who always have time, who listen, who, um, I guess, who are quite quiet about the way they do things. Um, and I, it's hard to generalize because you can have a great leader who are, you know, who are either side of the spectrum. But I'm just thinking that in digital is hard enough, and digital consists of, um, you know, dozens of micro statements within it, and it's very hard to be overwhelmed. And you can't be alone. You can't be left alone feeling completely overwhelmed. So people, you, you need to kind of guide them, and that's why when I say that my projects take six, nine, twelve months to complete. This is about um, kind of seeing things through with people rather than just saying, well, you, you have been doing everything wrong for the time being and we are going to start changing things to you. We're going to start changing things with you rather than do it to you. Dimitri, I, time is of the essence, and so I feel like I, I've only just started talking with you. But um, it, it strikes me, the, the, first of all, I like to think that the three mindsets that are helping digital transformation you seem to embody wholly. First is meaningfulness and the purpose of the BBC. Second of all is this notion of responsibility and also leading the industry, uh, which you seem to incarnate. And then the third one is about collaborating with the different countries, the different people in your organization. So you seem to be full on. At the same time, I wanted to just pull up one small insight, which is this notion you say, well, you need data because data is what convinces even the oldest journalists. No one can do that. 
you know, can fight data. And yet, at the same time, it's about what you make them feel. Mm. So it's funny. Data is a very rational component. It speaks to the limbic notions of what we, we were taught at school. But ultimately, change happens through the emotional sphere and the way mm. you make people feel. So it's that tight balance that you seem to be uh, navigating. Well, I, mean, I think you mean to the, 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 it's like when I describe what I do at work is I say that if my day consists of 12 different things, it always switches from macro to micro every half an hour. Because my meeting can be about a specific problem with BBC Indonesia, for example, or BBC Russian, Turkish. And then we can sit down and think about what we are going to do in the budget for 2019, for example. So in the same way, you do change the same way. So you start with, as I said, you start with a bigger picture. You start with getting people on board. You listen. You uh, you kind of build the understanding together. Uh, you, 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 you never paint the picture the way you see it. You kind of try to build the same picture, get people on board, and then the, the, and then you start using the data and kind of practicalities and tactical things afterwards. It's sort of it's strategic first, tactical second. Beautiful. Dimitri, how can someone get in touch with you or follow what you're up to? What's the favorite way you, you would recommend people to track you and, and listen to what you have to say? Well, I'm on Twitter, uh, Dmitry Shishkin in one word, and then I'm also I'm writing on LinkedIn fairly regularly as well. So I'm pretty uh, I I have have found that platform very very uh, useful to me as well. And your presentations that you you tend to put up online, do you put them up on LinkedIn or SlideShare or both? So I try to I try to write about my presentations off the back of my presentation. So instead of just sending the presentation, because again. The way I do presentations, they're mainly about kind of big num- one big number, one big picture, rather than kind of lots of words. So I, um, one of the things I'm going to do now is um, I'm going to write about five best books on leadership and management, which helped my career. So that's going to be my next post. Beautiful. Well, I will put all that into the show notes. Dmitry uh, Balshoi, um, spasiba, and uh, you see you much. soon. See you soon. Thank you, Minto. Thanks for having listened to this recording of the Minter Dialogue Show. You'll find the show notes and my other blog posts on branding and digital on Mindset.com. That's Mindset with a Y, of course, where you can also sign up for my bi-weekly newsletter at Mindset.com forward slash subscribe. If you like the show, go ahead and click the handy Facebook like button or share it out by your favorite media. In the meantime, come catch me on Twitter at MDial or listen up for the next show. Now enjoy Josh Sachs's Finger paint. Oh, fill me with all your colors any different way to rid me of the gray and heal me with all your imperfections that you mention in your lack of self-secure.
gorgeous in our palms make colors blend and look ugly in the end but they're pretty in their own disgusting values we'd hang our portraits in the hallways make our house guests cringe oh I Jim Stroud Podcast explores the discoveries and trends forming the future of our lives. Brain-to-brain communication, robot bosses, microchip implants for workers, and artificial intelligence replacing human workers are all happening now. If you want to know what's happening next, subscribe now to the Jim Stroud Podcast.